All right, everybody, we've landed. Yes, we have. Thanks for joining me. It's Rick Wagner here, getting it right on KNZZ KGLN. We're at 1192.7 on the FM side. That's 1100 on the AM side. And 980 and 101.3 on the respective sides from KGLN. And we are also on the Internet and a couple other ways. And, of course, our ships at sea, we always thank for them listening in as well. So we're back again this week. And, uh, you know, last week, I somehow got the show out of order. <laughs> it's it's me and technology. I have too much of it. I like it, but I just never seem to connect to the last 20%. Do you know what I mean? How you get the instructions for something and you read like 70 or 80% of it and like, yeah, I got that. And then uh, later on you find out that uh, you probably should have read all of it. Yeah, that's just how these things go for me. Um, but it was still pretty good, and I really appreciated uh, our uh, – Kelly Caulfield from the uh, Common Sense Institute spending some time with us on homelessness, uh, even though I was an annoying interviewer. But, uh, I mean, I got to tell you, just calling people unhoused is just not going to solve the problem. I also don't like the term unhoused. I don't like a lot of those terms. Unhoused reminds me of some place like unhorsed, like perhaps the house, they were in a house or on a house and they got bucked off. And that's just not what happened. We're not solving the problems by just re-identifying everything and relabeling everything. And you may recall that uh, the place where I'm at, and in some of the places that you folks are at, I'm sure it's true, too, that the percentage of the population that is made up of transients and those that, you know, are camping or you know, outdoor enthusiasts is rapidly increasing. And if you're someplace that has pretty good weather, it's really increasing. Or if you're a place where you have a very... Oh, shall we say, uh, generous social services system. They're rapidly increasing. And as I talked about last week, and I, I still think this is true, is that the way we treat this population, many of whom have very serious uh, mental health issues, uh, drug and alcohol issues that overlap there with those uh, mental health issues, that, you know, they're sometimes self-medicating and so forth, sort of like if you had a Venn diagram. I mean, Kamala Harris loves Venn diagrams. There's some overlap there, and then there is a, you know, a significant, I believe significant minority of people who are criminal actors in that population. One of the more sad things about it is that not only do they affect uh, the regular people they come in contact with, but they also disproportionately abuse and affect the people that they're with. The other people in the homeless population, particularly those that are mentally ill and and, and a little more helpless, uh, fall prey to these characters, too. So the whole thing is a, is a terrible situation, and we're not going to solve it by just waving our hands over to having some meetings, or we're not going to solve it by throwing money at it. Uh, and we're not going to ever completely make it go away. I mean, there were saddle tramps and hobos throughout our history. It's just a question of how many as a percentage of the population that you have. There are always going to be people that have a preference for whatever reason to be drifters, as they would say if you watch the Westerns. So there's there's going to be that. And there are going to be people who have mental health issues and they destabilize from time to time and they don't want to be confined or whatever the case may be. And having, you know, interacted with a number of these people over the years, sometimes they, they don't want to be inside. They don't want to have a, a that kind of life. And to some extent, if they aren't hurting anybody and that's how they want to live, it's hard to round them up. And uh, I, I don't think that's a solution either. That creates a very heavy-handed society. What you do is you just establish some rules and say, look, if this is how you want to live, these are the rules. If you stay inside those rules, 
you know, and uh, you're not hurting anybody and you're sleeping out someplace where uh, you're not in the way and you're not damaging anything, that's fair business. But unfortunately, that's not the way it goes. So we have a lot of work cut out for us in that area. And the present policies that we have going on in federal, state, and local governments in many instances are attracting more. And they're also making it easier for people that are teetering on the edge of that lifestyle. People who are drawn to that lifestyle for some reason or who don't want to do the things necessary to stay in one place and maybe have a job or or at least stay rooted somewhere. You know, their predilection is not towards that. And when you make it much, much easier to hit the road uh, through social programs and not making any effort to sort different people out who are more deserving of help than others, then you encourage some of those people to fall off that. They uh, they fall over that edge because uh, the drop down isn't as far as it used to be, and it's more attractive. It's not a simple solution. I don't pretend to have the answer, but I think we have better answers, and most of you probably have better answers than what we're doing now. Uh, so I thought it was an interesting conversation. Speaking of things that aren't better answers, how about uh, changing books all the time? Do you think that's a better answer to the world's problems? Do you think that... Uh, you know, what's going on in the world can be uh, can be bettered by going back and rewriting books that were written 100 years ago or 50 years ago or whatever. You think that's a solution? Well, if you don't, you're just some kind of stick in the mud, aren't you? Yes, because that's starting to get to be really the thing now is to go back and change literature, sometimes classic literature. Most of you have heard about this story about uh, Roland Dahl, who wrote uh, a bunch of books, The Witches, I think The Spirits, but... His most famous one you're going to be familiar with was uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which was made into the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So he was really what they like referred to as a beloved children's book author. And he was quite the guy. Mr. Dahl was quite the fellow. He had, he had a very distinguished career before this, and I think he has a great military background. I have to look again. That's what I recall. And he wanted to write children's books because he wanted to encourage children to read. Because he was worried that what he saw that children weren't reading as much, and he thought if he could write some books that really encouraged people, children, to read, that once they read books that were enjoyable and fanciful and fun, that they would want to read more. I think that's pretty straightforward. And so he did. He wrote a lot of good books that uh, children really liked. Unfortunately, I, they have some outrageous content in them. For instance, in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, or rather, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, they defer someone as fat. I know. That book needs to go right on the bonfire, no question about it. And those are the kinds of things that are getting edited out of the books. And when you look at these decision makers that are doing this, you get some kind of strange folks involved in this campaign against literature. And one of them is... One of these groups that were consultants on uh, Mr. Dahl's books uh, was uh, – I'm reading the story here, and I I think the story is actually from the Daily Mail, yeah. Um, they said that his, his books were neutered – I like the term – by woke consultants aged 8 to 30. And the leader of the group – and I, this I'm quoting here – was led by non-binary, asexual, polyamorous relationship anarchist who is on the autism spectrum. All right. So there's everything you need to know, I guess. I can't sort some of these things out. Can you be 
polyamorous and asexual. I know what asexual kind of is. I don't really have my head wrapped around the polyamorous thing. I have, I think I have a notion about it. And it seems like those two things are kind of at odds. And I don't know how you can be a relationship anarchist. You know, anarchy is a complete rebellion against rules and structure. So does that mean that relationships should have no rules or structure? If they don't have any rules and structure, how can they be something? You know, it's sort of like uh, the old joke, you know, anarchists unite. <laughs> you know, we're going to have our meeting tonight. Make sure you follow all the rules at the meeting that we have, you know, the Robert's Rules of Order at the anarchist meeting. Yeah, that's not how that works. So right away, it's like the first thing you think is, well, this is a person who's just got some problems, and they're just picking a bunch of big words that they think make them sound like they're out there somehow on the front lines of uh, wokeism. So they've like ask an AI, and we'll talk about AI here as part of this show, uh, to, to list all of the possible words that are related to, to wokeism and then just list them in describing themselves because I can't figure anything else out. But that's what's happening. We'll talk a little bit more about this, but the electronic ability to edit books that are already purchased does exist out there if they're downloaded in certain circumstances. All right, we're we'll back, back, everybody. Thanks for sticking around. Rick Wagner here, still getting it right on KZ, KGLN, and all sorts of little locations. We appreciate your listenership, and if you're listening to us on the Internet, thank you. If you're listening to us on the podcast, thank you as well. We really appreciate it. We've had uh, our downloads on the podcast, or rather people listening to them in the various places, go up, and uh, I appreciate it. You can listen to us on, well, you can just go right straight to the website where all these stories are at, uh, at therickwagnershow.com or politicalviking.com. I sort of throw that in because that's our nom de plume on Facebook and uh, sort of how I refer to myself as a political Viking because I uh, I regard Vikings as being very effective change agents. So uh, there you have it. But we were talking a little bit about this book thing before, about what's happening with books out there. You know, it's bad enough that they're going back through and changing authors. And he's not the only one. The other one that, that popped up is uh, and caught my eye was uh, Ian Fleming, who you may recall wrote the James Bond books. Now, I would recommend, if you have an opportunity, to read uh, Ian Fleming's work on James Bond, you know, Casino Royale, Dr. No, those books, because they're very good, and they're not much like the movie. Uh, the character, if you had to pick one of the actors that has portrayed him, James Bond, uh, it would probably be Sean Connery in terms of his physical description, attitude, and the way he conducts himself. But beyond that, there's no gadgets and things like that. It's a lot more straightforward, hardcore sort of spy uh, novels, and they're very good. And the villains are very good. As you know, you, you really can't have a good book like that if you have a thin villain. The villains are really the ones that draw everything to them, including your good protagonist. But... They're well worth reading. Now, that they're going through and taking out, of course, all the misogynist stuff. Because, you know, as you know, James Bond was a bit of a womanizer and uh, had kind of a bad attitude about things. He would, you know, kind of drift away and so forth. Although my memory of the books is that he never really was a bad guy. I mean, he just sort of, you know, he was there. And, of course, uh, women in the in the books, of you know, thought he was great. But he wasn't one for hanging around a lot. You know, he was on His Majesty's Secret Service. He had a lot of things to do. He had to go get the man with the golden gun. He had to stop Dr. No. 
Goldfinger was out there someplace. You know, this guy can't settle down, right? You can't expect him to. But they went through and made him less of a womanizer, apparently, or so forth. And that's fine if you want to do that, and the publisher owns the rights, and they give the permission, and they're complaining. But that you should have a caveat on it to say, by the way, this book has been altered from its original content to serve the interests of whatever you want to say. So the people want to read what the author actually wrote and not things that have been removed or in some cases added or changed, then you should have that choice. What I was going to say that's a little disturbing about some of the digital content, and these are things like you download from uh, some of the booksellers and so forth, where you download a digital book. You have to be careful that a lot of times when you do the agreement through the digital rights management on those books, that the publisher can change things in the book. And that can be done on your reading device. Now, not all are reading devices. I don't give, but you know, if, if you're essentially reading on something that is like a, uh, you know, that, that is owned by a company and you think that you have borrowed the book or whatever the case may be, you're probably re- actually, despite the fact that it's sort of downloaded on yours, you're actually hooked into their website and they may have permission from the publisher to change things. And I saw this first just a few years ago when some of the authors had reread their books and they thought they were not well done proofread and they were make a, some grammatical changes and punctuation and stuff like that. And that underlines the fact that in some of these cases, and you just need to check if you're using digital content, you know, just make sure that if they can change it, if you're giving them permission to change content and they should at least know about it. But that's a kind of a chilling idea. And we have the problem now, not only of the possibility of books being changed, I mean, but also that we can have books rewritten or written in the style of artificial intelligence now. Uh, I told you I'd get around to the AI stuff. So I started playing around, like so many people, with uh, this chat GPT, artificial intelligence. And I got to tell, it's pretty impressive. And it's more than a little chilling. I played a little game with it, asking it certain things and to do some fairly straight, straightforward factual questions and things like that. And it was, it was pretty good. Although there were a couple things it was wrong on. Uh, like I asked him once, asked him something, when something, a business was established that I knew and it was off the date. I mean, it wasn't just off a couple of days. It was off a decade. So whoever it gets its information is what it throws out there. If it's getting its information, I mean, we have that whole thing, garbage in, garbage out. Well, that's the same. It doesn't matter what it is. Anything that's essentially computerized is only as good as its inputs. So always take something you get from AI with a grain of salt in that way. Now, if you're having AI edit something or look at it, and there's a lot of programs out there, Grammarly and all kinds of things that will go through your uh, documents. As a matter of fact, Word, whatever we're out on Word now, Word 2069 or whatever it is, uh, will have an, has an editor function. It will go through and look at grammar and this and that. And it also has one of the way things you can have it check for too is objectionable content. That's right. If you're writing something in there and it's a little too conservative or, you know, if it's a little too misgendering or something, apparently we'll find it. But if anything like that is essentially artificial intelligence and it is only as good as the program that goes into it. We've talked about that before. Well, so I had uh, the chat GPT, uh, GBT, excuse me, 
I think it's GBT. Now I've confused myself. I finally ask it to write something. Uh, and I, I ask it to write a brief essay in the style of John Carter of Mars. Now, for those of you that don't know, John Carter of Mars is a series of books that was written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who you probably know more from the Tarzan series. But his John Carter of Mars series was also very popular. And when I was a kid, I read the heck out of it, and I would read it now. They're still they're still good. They're really a lot of fun to read. It's a really good book, series of books, John Carter of Mars. This guy somehow gets transported to Mars and becomes a, a famous swordsman, and it's the whole thing. It's just it's a rollicking adventure. It's really good. And... I ask it because I knew that there was a certain tone to that, right? It's sort of an adventuristic kind of tone, I guess, is the only thing I can say. It isn't, that's not a very good term because it's not very descriptive. But So it wrote like 300 words in the style of John Carter of Mars, and it did it in his voice. It's so, you know, I'm a warrior of Mars, and I, have, I left Earth and all this stuff. And it was really pretty good. <laughs> I've read a lot of that stuff, and it was pretty good. And I said it to a friend of mine that's really a science fiction buff, and I said, you know, I had him write this in the voice of John Carter of Mars, and he read it, and he just wrote me back and says, we're doomed. <laughs> he said, this is really pretty good. Now, he says, how, how much it could sustain it in terms of, you know, a plot line or something, we don't know. But it was able to do it and do it really fast. I also saw a story out there that some of the magazines – have been getting submissions for magazine articles that they pay for. And they've been finding a lot of them have been written by AI. Now, it's not doing it on its own. It's not like the AI is sitting there, you know, with a pair of, uh, you know, reading glasses on trying to look at the computer and see how we could make some money. It's uh, other people who are, who either can't get the work done or aren't very good writers letting the AI write something and then submitting and hoping someone will pay for it. And this company was discussing how they're able to find them. And they weren't very, you know, to identify them as AI written. They weren't very forthcoming about it, which I understand. You don't want to tell everybody how you're sorting the AI stuff out from actual, you know, people who are actually typing the whole thing themselves. Uh, and But what I got out of it was, and then I realized when I was messing around with it, that it doesn't have its own voice, per se, in terms of writing. You have to ask it to write something in a certain style. And I think what happens is, is people write it in the style of, you know, please write this in the style of Sinclair Lewis or, you know, Edgar Allan Poe, whatever the case may be. And they probably at their end, uh, put it through something, probably another AI and ask it, you know, what is this written in the style of? And if it comes up as being way too close to the style of some other author, they're going to start questioning it. But it was very weird, frankly, to uh, see this thing come up with it. And it's accelerating the fascination with AI. There's a tremendous amount of investment going into it. Bing, of course, has, you know, has incorporated that through Microsoft. We talked about it last week. Uh, you know, some of the answers they were getting, how the, the cranky the uh, AI was getting. But I'm just saying it's a, it's a fascinating thing to look at. And you can see just spending any time at all looking and thinking about it, you can see this diverging path right off of how much good it can do and how much damage it can do. And how, if it's turned loose on the Internet to look for disinformation, how fast it could find things that are only disinformation because they're things that it's told to look for. It doesn't know information from disinformation. 
Right? It, it, it does not have independent thought. We're not there yet, thank the Lord. It is only based on what people put in it. And so uh, there's a lot of, inf- of fascination from government agencies into this stuff now. And we really have to kind of watch it. And I'm out there, whenever I see a story about it and looking at someone like the IRS or someone trying to incorporate, you know, artificial intelligence and who they choose to do uh, audits on, which they use some computer program algorithms already, as I'm understanding. Uh, it's just something to watch. I keep my eye on it. So should you. We'll be All right, we're back. Thanks, everybody. Stick with me here. Get Rick Wired to getting it right here on KNZZ and KGLN. We're at 1100 and 980 on the AM side, depending on where you're at, and 92.7 or 101.3, depending on where you're at there. And, of course, we're on the Internet, and we are also on podcasting, uh, various places. It can you go direct to it if you want to go to our website, therickwagnershow.com, or politicalviking.com, which is our uh, Facebook place. Which you can go to our Facebook, too, uh, the uh, Political Viking, because we are the uh, disruptor out there. That's why this show is a little bit different. Now, after I've probably uh, made you nervous about artificial intelligence and this and that in the last segment. Hopefully it wasn't too boring. I, I find it fascinating. I, I just want to point out that it is ultimately a good thing if used properly, just like anything else. It's it's not the item, it's its use. It's sort of like the gun control debate. You know, you let a maniac have a gun, it's a bad thing. You let a citizen who's trying to defend people from the maniac have a gun. That's a good thing. It's the same kind of thing here. If you let maniacs run artificial intelligence so that they can decide to uh, turn your power off if you voted for a Republican, that's a bad thing. If you use artificial intelligence to help diagnose problems with various things that you have, like your vehicles or even your furnaces, they're talking about you know getting even more involved in the diagnostics of things household appliances and things like that where it can read circuitry and so forth and then figure it out a little bit based on what's happened with other things along that line. You know, it's, it takes it the next step beyond the diagnostic equipment, which tells you what the fault code is and this and that. Like an AI can take those fault codes and go right out and bring you back the data that says, oh, when it's this fault code and it's in this area, Many times it's this and that. The things that you could probably find out yourself, but have to do a little research, unless, of course, you've had a lot of experience with that specific problem. So there's there's a lot of things that can be useful for. Uh, will it think? No. It seems to think. And we use the term when it's, you know, tapping its foot there and before it gives an answer as thinking. That's not quite what we think it is. <laughs> not to use the same term over and over again. And it all goes back to this idea of life. And what separates life and awareness and sentience from machine intelligence and all this other stuff and the crazy things that we'll see on science fiction television shows and this and that, some of which will probably be ultimately written by AI. The difference, of course, is that there's something else going on with living beings. And we don't know what it is. So since we don't know what it is, even if we could build it into something, we can't. And I don't think we can build it in, parenthetically. That's my opinion. Because there's something in a living being that is different than anything we can construct. And when it leaves a human being, or really a, a living creature 
something has departed that body, that construct, and we don't really know what it is. We have our answers in our religious experience. But beyond that, we can't weigh it, we can't measure it, we can't detect it. We can detect all the operations of your mind, and we can detect when those operations shut down. We can see them shutting down in the case of some people like, say, Joe Biden, or people where they're vastly diminished, and they never really reached maturity, like Kamala Harris. Uh, But for the most part, we don't know. There's something else going on. So I don't think that our ability to build these things is ever going to put the idea that they can think like a human being into the equation. And just just think about this one thing. I'm using the word think a lot. A person can be present as an individual with a personality, the ability to reason. I know there are some people that don't seem to possess that. Uh, and think and even have that intuition. Whatever intuition is, it's the ability to see something and put two disparate things together or have a sense of wonder or curiosity. And we say those terms and we know what they are. But how would you program that? How would you really reach that? We don't understand it about ourselves. How could we do it to something else? And if, if you look at a living being, and it is vital thinking, functioning, like I said, and then something catastrophic happens to it, and it is, in our term, no longer alive. The person or animal is no longer alive. What left? What went away? We use the terms really casually, and in the, in the scientific community, they'll dress them up. And you always have to be aware of this. Well, you know, the bodily functions were no longer sustained, would no longer sustain brain function, and the brain should. Fine. Those are all just further, more complex descriptions of the idea that something isn't there anymore. Something has went away. Something decided the body could not sustain it. We agree with that. And it goes away. So whatever that is, we cannot quantify it. And we cannot seem to understand it enough to ever even have a passing shot, I think, of duplicating that ourselves. That, of course, is a godlike power. And thank the Lord that we are not imbued with that. We can't even figure out the plan that we're all involved in here, much less how to do something like that. So do I think that we'll ever think that like that? No. And the idea of intuition and being able to see something and have that spark of knowledge, that leap. And you know what I mean. It's the certain people out there see something and they see it a little bit differently and it triggers something in them. Let's take uh, Isaac Newton. I mean, we have the famous idea, oh, he was sitting under a tree and an apple fell on his head. Not exactly right. Newton had seen an apple fall. This is apocryphal stories anyway. I mean, we're never 100% sure. But we do think he saw an apple fall in his orchard. And it just, why does it do that? I mean, we, we see it all the time, right? And it takes a special moment to say, you know, it's there and it's held by something. But obviously there's something pulling at it all the time what is pulling at it when we see gravity we just just take it for something drops when you but what's pulling what is it that's pulling at it see it's that it's that extra question that humans can ask that i don't think machines ever can 
that that moment of why is that? That kind of curiosity, that kind of moment, that spark of creativity or genius, I don't think is reproducible any more than the idea of whatever it is that is a soul in a person that departs a body is reproducible. So, I mean, that's my two cents worth on that. It's it's interesting to think about uh, these things. And artificial intelligence can probably become very, very useful. I've messed around with it here to talk about it on the show and used it for a couple of things to see at work. And I talked about how I had it, had it write a brief essay in the voice of a character, you know, from a science fiction novel, an old-time science fiction novel. One of my favorites, because, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, when he wrote these John Carter Mars series, and I may, I may have mentioned this on the show before because it fascinates me, he describes Mars, of course, because uh, his character is now on Mars, and it's uh, having all these adventures and this and that. But he, one of the things that's always mystified uh, people, and astronomers especially, was when he wrote this, this was long before they had detected that Mars had any moons. The moons of Mars are very small, and they're very close to the surface, which, as we've discussed about orbital dynamics, when a satellite of any kind is closer to the surface, in order to stay up there, it has to move faster. It has to have that force that really spinning quick force of being closer to the planet to make it up there. Well, the moons of Mars, are Deimos and Phobos, are very close and small. And they weren't spotted for a long time until after Edgar Rice Burroughs wrote his books about John Carter. And he describes them as being very small, close to the planet, and hurtling across the skies. (laughs) And it's a very unusual phenomenon and not one that we had really knew anything about when he was writing about it. And the idea that he not only seemed to know about these two moons, described their size more or less, and how they moved across the sky, is just kind of an amazing fact. Uh, maybe he did go to Mars, and we just don't know. And we don't know. It was very bizarre. But anyway, you know, the, the kind of things that it can do when it can write in the voice of a character or something, is really not as amazing as it sounds. It is amazing to see that it can do it in the kind of time it does. You could do that, too, if you went and studied a lot of this person's work and the, how the character talked and then went and wrote it. The only difference is is the AI can go out and do this so much faster. And that's where it can be helpful in these kinds of things. It's just a matter of who controls it. Like I said, it's no different than how George Washington described government. The government was like fire. It could be useful when controlled, but dangerous when it wasn't controlled. It's the same kind of thing with AI. It's like our our firearms kind of, it's who's using it, right? So I I think we'll get very, very great benefit out of it as it goes on. We just have to be careful about who's in charge of how it's used and who's in charge of telling it what to think. I mean, obviously that makes a difference. If you let your 15-year-old go through and pick out apps for your phone, you're going to wonder why most of your apps are TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, <laughs> you know, all of the things that, that they use. That's how they think. If you let a far left progressive choose what AI, which is just like a child, should think is important, then that's what it'll do. So, you know, there, that's, that's just like anything else. If you let the wrong people be in charge, you're going to get a bad result. That's why it's so important for us to put the right people in charge, why we still have the ability to vote in a way in this country that we can't change our government. It seems to be slipping away in some countries, and it feels like it is here, but it's not. 
We just have to get over our aversion to the changes that the Democrats have made to the voting system. And we have to, as the old saying goes, fight fire with fire. We have to swallow the fact that we don't like the way they want us to vote, but we have to get better at it. And since we're smarter than them, we'll get better at it than they are at what they're doing now. That's how I feel about it. Besides that, when you look at all of these things and when you look at uh, the technology that's involved, we're never going to replace what you folks have. And because we have a lot of people out there that listen to do things, they make things, they do things, they produce things, they grow things. That know-how is pretty difficult to reproduce in any way. You can reproduce a lot of uh, knowledge base about something that could be useful to you, person as a reference. But that innate know-how that utilizes that intuition and the experience that someone has from doing these things and running across all of these oddball things, whether, whether you're framing a house or you run a dairy or whatever, there will be things, if you do it for a while, that are unusual that come up that will get stored in your memory bank. We call that a brain. And it will make you unique. You'll be able to help someone else out when they come to you with a problem that's unusual and say, ah, I've seen that before. And that's the, that is the, what's good about people that have know-how is it's more than just a straight book learning knowledge base. So that's why it's so important out there. And that's why as we're losing these people out of the workforce and we've devalued them so much in the past, we better get our act together because you can't live on a cell phone sitting in an alley with no food. <laughs> you know, if nobody's going to keep you warm, nobody's going to feed you, nobody's going to clothe you, uh, being able to play uh, a word game on your cell phone is not going to keep you alive. There's a lot more important things. We've sort of been dazzled by, uh, in many ways, useless technology because we like to be entertained. So we can't substitute entertainment for survival. Speaking of survival... Not to make too much of a transition here. I was looking at uh, what was going on in Denver because, you know, I'm, I'm very interested to make sure that we keep on top of these local races that we have. And I don't care if you're here in Colorado or Mesa County, uh, Grand Junction or Delta, Montrose, Meeker, Ridgeway, Montrose. You guys in all across the country, if people that are listening in Utah and on the Internet. You got to keep on top of these things because they're the ones that are banging you in the head. I mean, here in Colorado, of course, you know, we're peasants now because we have to trudge home with all of our goods on our own little sack that we bring from our own home. And uh, we're not even allowed to, uh, you know, use a sack that might be provided by the store that might be plastic for reasons that, frankly, the people that did the ban can't quite explain either. And let me tell you, a government that can tell you what you can carry your food in can do a lot more things to you if you don't watch it. And by the way, we got to get that taken. We're going to have to have a statewide initiative because legislature is too heavily tilted towards the Dems right now to get that ridiculousness repealed. But anyway, in city and county of Denver, as an example, and it's a cautionary tale for all of you out there, the first step towards the electrification of home building has begun, and it started in commercial. The Denver City Council, because they have the IQ of an ice cube, have decided that they want to jump on the climate bandwagon. And the way you jump on the climate bandwagon, which is bizarre if you think about it, is to have everything electric. And so they're mandating that new commercial construction, and I think it's past 2030 or something. I have to look again. I think it's actually sooner than that. 
the point is, this is how they're thinking is, is going to have to have all electric heating. That would mean replacing the heating in it as well as the hot water heaters. Now, the next step, of course, is going to be residential. And I've told you guys to be watching your stoves and your gas fireplaces because those are firmly in the crosshairs. Now, electric heating all by itself, as we know, is tremendously inefficient and expensive. And electrical energy in and of itself is an inefficient way to generate heat. And I've said this before. I mean, everything out here has potential energy in it. I mean, the best example, wood, right? If you want to burn wood in your fireplace, what are you doing? You're liberating the energy in in that wood through fire, which is essentially heat, right? Now, that by itself generates heat, helps you stay warm, does some things. It has a usage. Is it a particularly efficient usage? No, not really. How could we make it more useful? And how about this? You take the wood and you burn it below a boiler. And in the boiler, you place water. Water also has potential energy. How do we know? Because when you combine the water with the release of the energy from the wood in a fire, it becomes agitated and it releases steam. Steam has energy in itself. It's another source of energy. You see how the chain works. The fire from the wood heats up the potential energy of the water, so it transfers energy into that, and then that energy begins to be dissipated up in steam. Steam can be pressurized, right, put through little nozzles and so forth, and used to push things like, say, oh, a set of gears that would turn a locomotive or, in more modern terms, to turn a turbine to generate electricity. Now, you don't have to use wood because it's kind of inefficient. I mean, it doesn't convert all of or as much of. Nothing converts everything in all the potential energy is never converted to energy. There's always energy lost. It's one of the laws of thermodynamics. So you always lose something. And you're always looking for an energy source that loses less of its potential energy when it's converted than some other one. Natural gas uses less of its potential energy to generate heat than burning wood. And so you have natural gas can run a boiler and the boiler pushes steam. The steam turns a turbine, which, by the way, as we've always said before, ask somebody that loves electricity how it's generated because they don't know. Electrical conductivity uh, is generated by its relationship between in the electromagnetic spectrum between electricity and magnetism. And magnetism uh, is used in a generation, as any of you guys out there that have wired up a generator know that you essentially spin magnets around a wire, copper wire in this case, and it uh, pulls in the surrounding energy through the electromagnetic spectrum. And it, that's how it generates electricity. It's not just out there floating around. It's there, but it has to be converted. And it and to use it for heat is pretty inefficient because to make that hot, you make it through resistance. Resistance is in of itself an inefficient thing. It's in other words, you heat a wire up, uh, and the wire will only transmit so much electricity before it gets hot because it has impurities and difficulties in there. So it builds up resistance and it gets hot. It's exactly what happens if you overload a circuit in the wall of your house and the wiring gets hot and can catch fire. Well, it's it's sort of a, a, a controlled version of that. So 
Electric heat is really inefficient and expensive because of its inefficiency. So it's ridiculous. I mean, a good example is if you're driving an electric car and you turn on the heater, what kind of heater is it? Well, it's an electric heater. Because if you're driving an internal combustion car most of the time and you turn the heater on, what is it? Well, it's using the water that circulates around the motor to dissipate the heat, which is, once again, excess energy. It's uh, inefficient energy off an internal combustion engine, so it generates heat. That's lost energy. And you use that heat that's in the water, which is the cool engine, to try and dissipate that excess heat, uh, to run the heater. So you're actually using a more efficient type of energy conversion than an electric heater. An electric car, everything in it's pretty inefficient, but the heater is really inefficient, right? Because it's it has to generate energy from the battery, same battery that's charging everything else. These are the sorts of things that you people that are out there that have know-how just think about for a minute, and of course you understand it completely. But so many of the people that are making this policy have no idea how an internal combustion engine works. They don't know how an electric engine works or motor works. They don't know how the electricity gets to it. They don't know anything about that. And we've decided they're the people that should be making policy. Well, we haven't decided that, but some have. And, I mean, this is how you end up with people like Pete Buttigieg, who, as I said, I'm not entirely convinced he can ride a bicycle or certainly not for any distance, and is our Secretary of Transportation. This is how you end up with these crazy ideas. So if you're ever worried about not being necessary uh, and you have a skill, yeah, you're not ever going to be unnecessary. <laughs> these people can't do anything. They, they think they know everything. They know absolutely nothing about the practical applications. And so they'll always need you. But the point is to understand this world and see your place in it as a citizen and a person that knows how to do things, make things, and produce things, and understand that value. And that's why it's so important that you bring that value to your elections, to the process, and to use that value and knowledge that you have and the practical sense of knowledge that you have to question people who are running for office, to get past the platitudes and the, you know, the grandstanding and find out practical solutions that these people have in mind. And if they don't have any, you don't want them running anything. We'll be back next week.